Cause for Action is brought to you by the U.S. Chamber of Commerce Institute for Legal Reform, the leading legal reform advocate in the U.S. and around the world. Learn more at instituteforlegalreform.com. When you hear the phrase legal reform, you might scratch your head and wonder if it's about policy or the law. For the state advocacy team here at the Institute for Legal Reform, it's about both. Advocating for a fair legal environment isn't something that's only done in a courtroom. It also happens each year when state legislatures across the country convene to debate and vote on hundreds of bills. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Cause for Action. I'm Rochelle Mortimer, Associate Director for Legislative Affairs here at the U.S. Chamber of Commerce's Institute for Legal Reform. I cover the East Coast and some Midwest states for our team, and I'm here with my colleague. Hi. I'm David Meyerson, an Associate Director of Legislative Affairs here at the ILR. I cover predominantly the Western U.S., along with a number of states in the Midwest and South, in addition to working with our International Affairs Program. This year, in just the United States, more than 7,400 state lawmakers working in 99 legislative chambers will decide whether to enact legal reforms that could bring more balance and transparency to their state's legal systems. Unlike in Congress, most state legislatures are considered citizen legislators, which means they work as lawmakers during the short legislative sessions but have careers outside of politics. Most legislative sessions last only a few months or even weeks, and it's a sprint from beginning to end. We're here to discuss what's happening in the states and why elected officials should care about their state's lawsuit climate. Let's get into it. Rochelle, legal reform is a broad topic, and we work on lots of issues each year. What's an issue that you see getting some attention in the states this legislative session? Thanks, David. So trial lawyer advertising is an issue that we've been working on for a couple years now, but one that's still got a lot of momentum behind it. We have six states that have enacted reforms such as these and some good court um, rulings backing up the, the importance of these reforms. So just to explain a little bit about what these do, trial or advertising are those ads you see on TV, you know, with the scary music, um, listing out a bunch of injuries or even death that you can experience if you've taken um, a type of medicine or used a specific medical device. And, you know, the, the reason that we really care about these ads are a lot of times people can, you know, be harmed by them because they get scared about taking their medication um, or about a, you know, medical device that they're using. And if they stop taking that medication without consulting with their doctor, there can be a lot of, you know, consequences such as strokes, heart attacks, um, you know, and can result in permanent damage and even death. So, you know, keeping these advertisements within certain guidelines, you know, taking away some of the misleading tactics that can be used, such as um, labeling the advertisement as a medical alert or a public service announcement or, you know, citing to research that's not supported, things like that that can make people believe that the medication that they're taking that they've, you know, discussed with their doctor and that is approved by the FDA, is it portrayed as some sort of, you know, immediately dangerous um, substance that they shouldn't be using. Um, so turning back to you, David, what's an issue of importance in your states to businesses and why do, should the issue matter for the general public? 
Well, thanks, Rochelle. And no, look, certainly trial lawyer advertising is a major issue in states I work with as well. Um, but another one, and I believe this is true in your quote-unquote part of the country, is third-party litigation funding, uh, or what we uh, call TPLF. TPLF has exploded into a multi-billion dollar industry in recent years. Uh, most estimates put it at least $2.5 billion on the low end. Uh, some estimates have it uh, $5 billion or more on the high end. And it's become a ubiquitous feature within civil litigation and one that does not have nearly enough uh, transparency as part of it. Um, it is a form of litigation funding that involves uh, typically hedge funds and others uh, that invest uh, uh, millions and sometimes hundreds of millions of dollars into uh, what we call big ticket litigation, things such as mass tort claims uh, and class actions, as well as commercial litigation. Uh, and these investors uh, front end this money to a law firm or to a party, uh, obviously in exchange for an agreed upon uh, cut of any award or settlement. Uh, these funders invest the money in, in individual cases, or actually in, in some cases an in increasing frequency into an entire portfolio of cases. Um, this um, diversification of funds allows them uh, to, um, to really exist outside of typical uh, economic constraints, especially in moments of, of economic uh, uncertainty, such as the one that we're in um, right now. Uh, in almost all cases, TPLF occurs under a, a real veil of secrecy. Uh, as a result, the court and other parties do not know that behind the scenes, uh, someone may be controlling uh, the litigation. Uh, we've actually seen uh, this very allegation play out uh, in a new lawsuit that was filed uh, very recently by Cisco Corporation. This is a large uh, U.S. food distributor against entities uh, that are part of Burford Capital, known as Burford, uh, which is believed to be the largest litigation funder in the world. According to uh, Cisco, Burford approached them offered them funding in Cisco's antitrust litigation that was initially uh, taking place in 2019. Uh, however, things quickly soured, and, and Cisco is now alleging that Burford is actually preventing them uh, from accepting uh, what they believe to be reasonable terms of the settlement in their antitrust uh, litigation. So uh, Burford would, would apparently be rejecting these fair settlements uh, because it believes Cisco could hold out for a better offer. And this is uh, a really unfortunate but, but a great example of one of the many concerns uh, surrounding uh, third-party litigation funding that there could uh, be a drive of additional uh, unmeritous lawsuits, uh, could make uh, settlements more difficult, could impact the attorney-client relationship. Um, and another one that, that is really gaining steam in terms of uh, concerns is around uh, the dire consequences concerning uh, national security. Um, and, and obviously, it's impossible to know, given we don't yet have the necessary disclosure around third-party litigation funding, but many national security experts believe that U.S. adversaries like China or Russia could be using third-party litigation funding to negatively impact U.S. companies of national security importance, such as aerospace or chip manufacturing industries through the U.S. court system, uh, trying to uh, tie them up in costly and time-intensive litigation and potentially even opening them up uh, to trade secrets through the discovery process. So a uh, very, very uh, troubling uh, new uh, thing moving through the court system, but thankfully one 
uh, that is beginning to get addressed by states throughout the country. Only one state, Wisconsin, currently has uh, a state law on the books involving uh, third-party litigation funding, uh, but there's about a half dozen states currently uh, moving third-party litigation funding bills, California, Kansas, uh, Nevada, Missouri, Oklahoma, uh, and Montana all have a third-party litigation funding in addition to a number of states uh, that have a litigation finance bill. So definitely an area uh, that state legislators, thankfully, are, are taking very seriously. Another issue, uh, Rochelle, I'd love to discuss and, and get your take on what's happening in, in some of your states is around public nuisance. This is another major uh, issue excuse me, the ILR uh, is quite concerned and, and the business community is quite concerned about. And it's really taking a previously well-established law uh, concerning public nuisance and contorting it far beyond its traditional boundaries to become an all-encompassing tour. We've seen plaintiffs' lawyers attempt to alter this ancient cause of action into an all-purpose, potentially limitless civil tour attempting to address a wide range of societal issues that should be left to state legislatures. Traditionally, public nuisance has been a vehicle for government actors to seek abatement of criminal interference on public lands, roads, or waterways. One example of this historical use of public nuisance being drastically altered can be seen in St. Louis, where the city council has advised its city attorney to explore the use of public nuisance to go after car manufacturers for making their vehicles too easy to steal. Rochelle, how are you seeing this issue play out in your states? Yeah, I mean, so it's definitely become more widespread. You know, it started with St. Louis and it's, um, you know, gone to various other cities in the country, Cleveland, Seattle, um, that have, you know, been exploring these public nuisance lawsuits, as particularly in the example you cited with the cars. But, you know, another interesting aspect to this is that a lot of the um, conduct that these suits are meant to go after is already illegal. So with those suits, it's because cars are too easy to steal. Car theft is already already illegal. Um, there are other suits that are popping up that have to do with litter. Littering is also illegal. Um, but, you know, these suits are in some ways an attempt to hold companies accountable for conduct that, you know, really should be prevented um, because, like I said, those those types of actions are already illegal. But because cities and counties are, you know, being are being hit with expenses related to these um, illegal actions, such as, you know, the expense of paying for someone to clean up the streets or paying for, you know, the extra hours that the police officers have to put in as they track down these um, criminals. The cities and counties are often the ones bringing this type of litigation to try and offset some of those costs onto companies that are pr producing products related to these criminal actions. Um, so. That's something that we're really working on to ensure that, you know, state attorneys general are the ones that are determining whether um, a suit is, you know, uh, appropriate for the state. And if it's a matter of statewide concern that they have control over it, just because another aspect of this is, you know, too many cooks in the kitchen. When you have a hundred different cities and counties trying to, you know, settle a lawsuit, um, it can get, there can be a lot of different conflicting interests and really, you know, the attorney general should be guiding the state as the chief enforcement, law enforcement officer of the state, they should be guiding the state's 
um, public policy in these areas. That's a great point, Michelle, which was, you know, led me to think about another issue we care a lot about, uh, data privacy, an area where, while we believe certainly that uh, there should be one piece of, of sound federal policy uh, that dictates data privacy laws in all 50 states, until we get there, uh, it's important, hopefully, that states continue to pass sound data privacy laws that do not have what we define as a, a private right of action or a PRA, where anyone, any rounds, could sue a business for an alleged a data privacy breach on an area this complex, uh, this nuanced, we believe very strongly uh, that, that that authority should rest with, as you talked about, each state's attorney general who's best positioned uh, to tackle these very difficult and complex issues. Are there any other issues you can think of on the state level that you think are not getting enough attention? Yeah, actually, so when you bring up private rights of action, um, there's another issue where those are becoming more popular, and that's um, in the area of telephone solicitations. So um, the Telephone Consumer Protection Act is the federal statute that, you know, puts limitations on when these calls are allowed to be made, you know, how what technology they're allowed to use to make them, et cetera, et cetera. And states are now, you know, looking at passing their own mini TCPAs um, to control, you know, these these calls, and uh, you know, the everyone knows that robocalls and scam, illegal robocalls and scams, are a big problem. Um, you know, we all get those calls, but the unfortunate fact is that these private rights of action really only incentivize private plaintiffs' attorneys to go after companies that maybe, you know, there was a technical glitch and they sent. Um, a text message to the wrong person or even, you know, human error where someone was entering their information into a form to receive notifications, but they put a six instead of a seven. So the, you know, notification goes to the wrong number or, you know, someone has their, they give up their telephone number and it gets reassigned. So they accidentally call the wrong person. Things like that where companies have very good compliance measures in place to try and prevent these things. But, you know, no one's perfect. And, you know, even if they're complying 99.9% .9 of the time, there are always kind of things that might go to the wrong phone number. And that's what these private plaintiffs are going to go after with these private rights of action, um, where, you know, the scam calls that are being, you know, um, ramped up in the hundreds and millions because of the, you know, the technology available now in international um, locations um, from criminals who, you know, don't have a storefront, they're not going to, you know, be easy to track down, private rights of action aren't going to stop those. And that's, you know, the bulk of the calls that are really harming people. So, you know, we really think that the private right of action is not the way to address that sort of calling, um, but that, you know, it's, it is a big problem. Um, and, you know, I think that the AG is really, you know, in tracking down those, um, those scam shops are really the ones who are most able to do that. Fascinating. Well, it's, it's great to be here in the trenches with you. And as we uh, come down the final stretches of these uh, various state legislative sessions, we look forward to continuing to work um, business community to hopefully create a sensible legal reforms that help bring transparency on, on this important topic. We covered a lot of ground today. If anyone would like to learn uh, more information, uh, we direct you to our website, uh, the Institute for Legal Reform. It's all one word, instituteforlegalreform.com, uh, and look forward to continuing the conversation there. <laughs>